0: Good morning, good to see everybody again this Sunday. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Exodus chapter 16. It's working today, (laughs) praise God, just for the time being, but that may change. Today we're going to start off looking at a story that I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with In Exodus 16, the Israelites are two and a half months into their 40-year journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. They've come to the wilderness of Sin, which looking at it, it looks like the wilderness of Sin, but it's actually pronounced Sin, which means thorn. And after being there for a few days, they come to Moses complaining about not having anything to eat. And when you see where they were, it's easy to understand why they were complaining about this. You know, when we hear the word wilderness uh, over here in this part of the world, I think we, we... ...tend to think of a large forest or uh, a mountainous area or something like that. That's wilderness to us, but in the Middle East, a wilderness is something quite different. When we were in Israel just a few weeks ago, we saw this firsthand. And one day we went out into the wilderness that uh, John the Baptist... ...where John the Baptist spent a good part of his life eating locusts and wild honey, as the Bible says... Now, I remember growing up as a kid in church and hearing these stories of John the Baptist and every time I heard that he ate locusts and wild honeys and wore clothes of of camel's hair, uh, I thought it meant that John was a little crazy. There was just something that was not quite r- right about John the Baptist, but now after being there and seeing what the wilderness looks like, it's, uh, I, I get it now. I mean, he was probably happy to find locusts because that's about all there was, and if he did find honey, man, well, that was just, that was just the best thing. So I actually took a picture of this when we were over there, so uh, there it is, this is the wilderness. Uh, you can see there's nothing there but rocks and sand and so every time the bible says jesus went or john went or whoever went in the wilderness this is the area they're talking about and i'm telling you that wasn't just one little spot from right there that's all there was as far as you could see around for miles and miles and miles miles it is that desolate and barren and that's pretty much what the wilderness of scene looked like too there's a picture of that as well So this is the wilderness of Sin and it is in what is now the southwestern corner of Saudi Arabia. And so now you get it why the people were complaining about not having anything to eat because there is absolutely nothing around there. And they were pretty dramatic in their complaint saying things like, well, God should have just killed us while we were in Egypt. At least we had something to eat over there. It would have been better to have eaten in slavery than to die of hunger in freedom. I'm telling you, it's a good thing that I'm not God. Because I think I would have just wiped them out right there on the spot. I mean, they just experienced one of the greatest acts of God of all time when he parted the Red Sea for them to go across and then closed it back over the Egyptians who were in hot pursuit. And not only that, but just before they got here to this place, they came to a place called Mara, And Mara contained all these pools of water, but they couldn't drink them because all the water was, was rotten. It was spoiled. Of course, they complained about that. But God had Moses cut down a tree and told him to throw it in the pool. And when he did, the water became clean and they all drank. Now think about the symbolism of that. A tree took what was dirty And made it clean. Just like the cross made from a tree took us who were dirty with sin and made us clean. So far, God has not failed at proving that He is going to take care of them. He is going to meet all of their needs. He's given them no reason at all for them not to trust Him. And yet, here they are, not trusting Him again and complaining about it. But because God is a whole lot more merciful than I am, he comes through yet again. And so what he does, he sends in the evening times a bunch of quail. So many of them that they just covered the ground where they just had to go up there and gather up as many quail as they wanted so they, they could have meat to eat. And then in the mornings, he sent what they called manna, which was bread that, that just covered the ground like dew. And this is what we're going to be looking at. So Exodus 16, we're going to start in verse 13 and read down through 21. So let's all stand together as we honor God's word. Exodus 16:13 says this, so it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it?" for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, "It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded." "'Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. "'You shall take an omer apiece "'according to the number of persons "'each of you has in his tent. "'The sons of Israel did so, "'and some gathered much and some little. "'When they measured it with an omer, "'he who had gathered much had no excess, "'and he who had gathered little had no lack. "'Every man gathered as much as he should eat. "'Moses said to them, "'Let no man leave any of it until morning.' But they did not listen to Moses, and some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it, gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful this morning just for the opportunity to come here and gather as your people in your name, Lord, to, to hear from you God, I pray, Lord, despite my failures and inadequacies, despite my absolute bankruptcy of having anything good in and of myself, God, I pray that you would use me to let your will be accomplished. Lord, your word says that the gospel is the power of God. So, Lord, as I make that announcement, God, I pray that that power would be at work among us. And in us, God, I pray that you would rain down your power, rain down a revelation of who you are, that we would be changed. God, I pray that today would be a defining moment in someone's life, Lord, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Like I said, I'm sure this familiar is, or this story is familiar to you, and um, if it is, no doubt you have heard many sermons and lessons taught on this story, and the main lesson that we hear is usually this teaches us that we can trust God to provide for all of our needs. Even when it looks like there's no way, even when it looks like all hope is lost, God comes through in miraculous ways. And yes, that is a good lesson to know. That's something good to believe, but there is so much more to it in here than that. Because like I always say, whenever we read the Bible, no matter what we are reading, we should read it with the intention of having an encounter with Jesus. Because all of the Bible is about Him. We don't change by discovering some moral lesson. We change only by having an encounter with Jesus. And when we read God's word, that's what he wants us to do is to encounter him. So the story of the man in the wilderness is ultimately the story of Jesus. It is a foreshadow of what was to come. And the reason why I can stand here and say that I know for a fact that this particular story is about Jesus is because Jesus himself actually told us it was. So now turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 6, and I'll show you this. In John 6, we find another story involving bread, where Jesus takes five loaves of it along with two fish, and he ends up feeding 5,000 people with it. And then right after that is the account of him walking on the water. And so all the people in the area here, because of these great miracles, they're all worked up. And large crowds are forming, wanting to, to find Jesus, looking for him. We'll pick up in, in verse 26 there. It says, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Essentially, Jesus was saying, you seek me because I met a temporary need of yours in satisfying your hunger with bread, but I didn't come just to meet your physical needs. I came to meet your greatest need. And then verse 28 says therefore they said to him what shall we do so that we may work the works of God Now this is a very common question that many of us still ask still think today it's a, a particular mindset we have or wonder what do I need to do What do I need to do in order to receive a blessing what do I need to do in order to have God's favor and that mindset, that way of thinking comes from the old covenant ways the formula of if you do this then God will do this and that's exactly why these people were asking this question because their whole life and culture was centered around the law which was all about doing what one had to do in order to remain in good standing with God they recognize that Jesus has this incredible access to God's power they know that God is doing something spectacular through him, and they want to get in on it too. So they asked, What do we have to do in order to do that? They just assumed that it was something they had to earn, some rule they had to follow, some ritual that they had to perform. And I just love Jesus' answer. Verse 29 Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He was saying, it's not about what you do. It's about what God does. Jesus is also saying with this, you think multiplying a few pieces of food was miraculous? You think me walking on the water was something spectacular? I'll tell you something even more miraculous and more spectacular than that, and that is for you to believe me, for you to see me, For who I am and understand the purpose for which I came. Now, we're gonna get into how this ties into the manna story, but I wanna park right here for just a minute because this is no small point that Jesus was making here. And he was even making a pretty big doctrinal statement on the nature of salvation, which is important for us to get because how you view your salvation has a tremendous impact on how you relate to God and how you actually live out the Christian life. So Jesus said the work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. What this means is that for anyone to see Jesus for who he is and understand what he has done, for anyone to see and to know that Jesus is their only hope to be made right with God God is the one who causes that to happen. Salvation is all God's doing. We play no part in our initial salvation. That is all a work of God. Jesus was saying that this was bigger than the miracle of multiplying the loaves and fish, it was bigger than just walking on the water because of how absolutely depraved and dead we are in our sin. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. A natural man means anyone who is not saved, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God living inside of them. It means that apart from the Holy Spirit giving you that ability, you cannot see and recognize the the things of God for what they are, including Jesus being your only hope. And this is why I say you can't argue or debate someone into salvation, You cannot convince someone rationally by natural means. It has to be the Holy Spirit being the one who reveals that truth to them. Now, in no way does that mean, well, it's pointless for us to be sharing the gospel then. If God's the one that does it and he's just going to do what he does, then, then why do I have to take part in that? No, God uses us to do that miraculous work. A lot of times we are the vehicle through which he brings that revelation and does that work. He wants us to join him in doing the things that he is doing in the lives of people. What it does mean is that whether or not they believe what you say is not on you. Which is a huge burden lifter. Because it's all on God. It's up to Him whether they believe what you tell them or not. Here's some other texts that teach us this. I mean, just a few verses down in the same chapter, verse 44, listen to what Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him it doesn't get any plainer than that i don't know how you can twist that verse to mean anything other than what jesus just plainly said right there and then again i mean he doubles down on it in verse 65 no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, talking about that faith, it is the gift of God. He gives you even the faith to believe as a free gift of his unbelievable grace. Boy, it sure is quiet in here. But I'm telling you, that is good news. I'm going to tell you why. For one thing, it means if there's nothing you did to get saved, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Later on in here, God says, All those that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not lose any of them, I will not cast any of them out. And the reason why God does salvation like this and in all his doing is so that we will not be able to take any credit whatsoever for our salvation. There is nothing that we can point to and say, I'm saved because I did that. I've said this before. You are not saved because you walked down the aisle of the church or because you repeated a prayer after somebody. Those were just responses to what God initiated in you. It was all his doing. He did this so that I can boldly stand here and say, I'm not saved because of anything that I have done. I'm saved solely by the grace and the mercy of God and what he has done. Now just like these people in John, a lot of us get caught up. In miraculous signs and wonders. And yes I believe those things still happen today. And it is exciting to be able to be a part of things like that. But the greatest miracle, the most spectacular of signs and wonders is for somebody spiritually dead and deaf and blind to come to saving faith. The greater miracle, the greater work of God is for a dead spirit to come to life. It is for a depraved heart to be transformed. It is for a person absolutely defiled by sin to be able to be declared righteous and holy before God. It is for someone who absolutely deserves nothing but eternal damnation to be adopted and accepted as a son. You want to be a part of a great miracle? then go share the good news with somebody who needs to hear it. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said people were talking about all the miracles he was doing. And he said, guess what? Greater things than these will you do. A lot of times people think, I've heard it so many times, mean, all those miracles that Jesus was doing, that means we get to do them, but even more. No, it doesn't. He didn't say more of the same thing. He said something greater. Well, what could be greater than healing the lame, and the sick, or anything like that, because I'm telling you, those miracles were temporary. Everybody that Jesus healed eventually died, right? The wine that he turned into wine from water got all drank up. I don't know if that's correct grammar or not, but (laughs) it was gone. He said greater works than these. What is greater than some temporary miracle? An eternal one where somebody's life is completely transformed. It carries on into eternity. That is the greater thing Jesus was talking about. All right, let's keep reading here in John 6, verse 30 and 31. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. All right. This question they just asked has got to be the dumbest question ever recorded in the Bible. What do you do for a sign that we may believe you? Just after he had fed 5,000 people with a value meal and walked literally on top of the Sea of Galilee. And now they're going, what sign do you do? Like Bill Ingvall would say, here's your sign. (laughs) And then they mentioned the manna. They were saying the manna that God sent from heaven was a sign to our ancestors that they could believe him and to know that, that he was with them. What kind of sign do you give us like that? And here's Jesus' answer and how it ties back into Exodus 16, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. He was saying, look, the manna sent from heaven to your ancestors. I know y'all keep talking about that. I know that was a great miracle. But that was pointing to something so much greater. That wasn't just about filling their bellies. That was about something much greater. Greater it wasn't about god meeting your physical needs. It was a a foreshadow of god meeting your your spiritual need I am the manna sent from heaven to meet your greatest need And so now we hear jesus himself telling us that he is the fulfillment of the story of the manna He is the substance that cast a shadow that was the manna in exodus 16 now it's important to understand that the purpose of finding Jesus in any Old Testament story like this is not just so we can go, oh, cool, that's how it lines up and points to the gospel. That's, here, here are the similarities between the two. No, the, there's a purpose to it. It means that we can now go back and look at that story from a gospel perspective and learn some things from that that tell us something about what it means for us to be in Christ now. So let's go back to Exodus 16 and do that. So God sends manna down from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread sent from heaven that gives life to the world. So the manna in the story represents Jesus. So with that in mind, look at verse 16 through 18 again. It says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. Sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. So they all went out and they gathered just however much they thought that they would need for how many people were in their house or their tent because they were moving around they don't measure it at this point they're just kind of estimating based on how many people they had but then every one of them no matter how much they had gathered when they get back to the house they take that omer and they measure what they had taken and what they discover is that every single one of them had gathered exact the exact right amount that they needed Which was one omer per each person. So if there were two people in the house, they found out that they had gathered exactly two omers. If there were six or eight people in the house, they found out that they had gathered exactly six or eight omers. Now, you're probably wondering how much an omer was, right? Well, luckily, the text tells us, look at the very last verse in the chapter, verse 36. It's even in parentheses. Being in parentheses means essentially saying, by the way. So, by the way, now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. So there you go. <laughs> no, you don't. When I read this, I was like, what? That did not tell me anything. What the heck is an ephah? And so I did the next most spiritual thing I could think of, and I Googled it. (laughs) And here's what I found to be the definition of an ephah. An ancient unit of Hebrew measure of dry volume equal to a bath or one-tenth of a homer. So an omer is one-tenth of an ephah, and an ephah is one-tenth of a homer, and they're both equal to a bath. Clear as mud, right? Okay, all you math teachers, y'all should make a, a, a word sentence out of, a, a math problem out of that right there, okay? Johnny had 10 omers, and an omer equals half a bath, and that would, be, that would be good. Good way to get the word in there. But I finally found something that I understood and said that it was equal, and if it was equal to approximately 22 liters, Uh, liters is metric we still don't use that but at least I know that a large coke bottle is two liters so now I had something that I could base this on so an ephah is about eleven large bottles of coke and an omer is one tenth of that so after gathering up the manna each person had enough bread to fill just over a two liter bottle of coke And from what else I found, that that was more than enough for one person to eat three meals a day with that. The point is, they all had exactly what they needed, and they all had exactly the same amount. What does that mean in light of the gospel? It means that when you come to Christ, you get just as much of Him His blessing, his spirit, his favor, his power as anyone else. No Christian has more of Jesus than any other. And that is important to know because I have encountered so many people who it is obvious they do not believe this. They talk and they act like the preacher or someone who is more passionate about God than they are. Or someone who seems to be used of him a little more than they are. That they apparently have more than they do. That is not the truth. You have just as much of him as me or anybody else. The point is not how much of him you have, it's what you do with it. It's what you're doing with him, what you are allowing him to do through you, which brings us to the next part of the text, verse 19. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. So what they were doing, some of them weren't eating all the manna they had, and so they were just kind of setting aside what they didn't eat and saving it to eat a later day. It was like, I don't really feel like eating this right now, so I'll just save it for when I do feel like it. Pretty good description of how a lot of people are treating Jesus in their life. Yeah, I have Jesus, but I'd really rather do my own thing right now. So, I'll just kind of put him to the side over here for maybe when I get in a bind or something. I don't really feel like being very spiritual, especially when I'm at work or when I'm at school. So, I'll just kind of put him over here on the side for when I get to church. Kind of put him over here in case I really need him. For some, their life could be best described as Jesus on the shelf, he's not the sinner. He's not preeminent. He is not foremost or priority. He's just kind of up on the shelf in case they get in trouble. Just sitting on the shelf is nothing more than an accessory to their life. Just kind of using for some decoration so that they could look better in front of others. I'll tell you something. Jesus will not settle for being just an accessory or a decoration to your life. That is not what he died for. And God said several times in the book of Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. But here's the main point I want us to get from Exodus 16 in light of John 6. After the Israelites received this miraculous provision, they started complaining again. They got hungry again. And they even started complaining about having nothing to eat but manna. They got tired of eating it. And the reason why is because God met what they thought was their greatest need. But hunger was not their greatest need. Their greatest need was that they were dead and in need of life. Their greatest need was that they needed to be free, not from slavery in Egypt, but from the bondage of sin, and because their greatest need wasn't satisfied, they were never satisfied with anything else. Look again at what Jesus said in John 6:25. He said, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst." He wasn't talking about physical hunger and thirst. He was talking about being the fullest satisfaction of our greatest need. He was saying, until you find your full satisfaction in me, you will never be satisfied in anything else. But when you do allow me to be your satisfaction, you'll be content with whatever comes at you in life. You'll never feel like you are in want of of anything when you get your fill of me. You know, so many times we think that our greatest needs in life are anything other than Jesus. And so a couple in a miserable marriage will think, well, my greatest need right now is to have a better marriage. No, your greatest need is to have Jesus. A bad marriage is a symptom of an absent Jesus. And your marriage is never going to be fixed until your relationship with Jesus is fixed first. Another example is race. There's so much talk right now in our country about race relations. And man, I get it. There is a faction out there that I believe is just purposely trying to make things worse. Worse they want race relations to be bad because it fits into their agenda, but people are trying a myriad of ways to what they think is going to fix race relations, and none of them have abs- none of them have anything to do with jesus and so they think if we could just ban the right words, if we could just pass the right laws, if we could just fill the right quotas, or one of the biggest things that you hear today is if we could just Have the right dialogue. No, a dialogue is not going to fix anything unless it is a dialogue about how Jesus is the only way of fixing it. All of these attempts are nothing but an absolute waste of time. All of the problems in this world are symptoms of a deeper heart problem. And Jesus is the only remedy for that. He is the only one who can change a heart. And when a heart change, attitudes change. Behaviors change. The only real solution to race relations is Jesus. Because the Bible says when you are in him, there is no division of race. We are all one in him. And so to try to fix race outside of Jesus, it's not going to happen. People are going to continue to be prejudiced. They're going to continue to be uh, racial if they are not in Christ. He is the only answer. And you could just go down the list of all the problems in our country and the problems in our own personal lives as well. And with each of those problems, we're always thinking, well, if I only had this or if I could only do this, then all my problems would be solved. If we could just vote the right party into office, if I just had the right mate or boyfriend or girlfriend, or if I could just make more money, then all my problems would be fixed. No, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and Jesus is the only remedy for that. And if we aren't turning to him, if we aren't completely relying on him, we're just gathering up manna today, which is going to leave us even more unsatisfied tomorrow. And many of us are stuck in that foolish rut, thinking that more of what doesn't satisfy just might satisfy. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know what your heart really yearning for the most of what you think is your greatest need right now I don't know how you would fill in the blank I think you know if I just had things would be so much better but what I do know is Jesus is the only answer for whatever it is And until you find your satisfaction in him, I promise you, you will not be satisfied with anything else. You will not be satisfied with your spouse. You will not be satisfied with your job. You will not be satisfied with how much money you have. Nothing is going to satisfy you until you find it in Jesus. If you want to know how to do that today, if you're tired of living a life where he's just kind of on the side, doing things your own way, if you want to know how to make him priority, or maybe you're one in here this morning where you feel him drawing you, you've been rejecting him and rejecting him, living life your own way, But now God is drawing you to his son. Telling you today can be the day that that all changes. Today can be the defining moment in your life. I encourage you to walk out of this building different than you walked in here. And God wants to do that with somebody in here. Man, his presence is just too strong here. Has been with us too strong this morning For him to just go, you know what, I don't just want them to go through the motions this morning. No, he's got bigger plans than that. And that plan is you. So I'm going to pray. And after I do, we're all going to worship the Lord together. And during that time, if there's any of these things that he's dealing with with you, there are people that are going to be down here on these front rows that would love to talk with you about that and pray for you about that. Or maybe you just want to spend time with God one-on-one with you and him. I'm telling you, whatever he's speaking to you, some of you know what I'm talking about because your heart's about to beat out of your chest right now. If that's you, respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I thank you for being here with us. I thank you for speaking directly to somebody that you knew would be here today. Lord, it just reminds me the text I got from a pastor friend this morning said, I'm praying that people will come to your church this morning that need to hear what God has given you to say. Lord, I believe you have answered that prayer and there is somebody here that you are changing right now. Lord, if it's repentance that's required, I pray that we would repent. us just see your goodness. Let us see our own condition apart from you and that you being the only remedy for that. Lord, for those that have just been trying to find their satisfaction in so many other things, God, today I pray will be the day where they find it in you. Lord, whatever it is that has been holding them back, whatever lie they have believed that's just been keeping them putting it off, Lord, I pray that that would end today. God, you are good. You love us so much. Thank you for that. So, God, I'm going to step down and just let you do your thing. It's for your glory we're asking this. In Jesus' name, amen.